Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Goo Goo Mattress Company. Super comfortable and very affordable. Nothing better than a great night's sleep with a Goo Goo Mattress. Discount codes available later in the podcast. Hello and greetings, everyone. Today's conversation is the most amazing discussion I've had in the two years of Now and Zen Japan. This episode could very well change your life, especially if you suffer from unhealthy lifestyle habits. Prepare to be blown away by Kaki Okamura's insight, demeanor, and wisdom to well being and nutrition. She breaks down Japanese based wellness concepts through her four pillars to healthy living in a very convincing and non preachy way. She's a writer, an illustrator, a wellness coach, and very well could be a therapist or nutritional counselor. In addition to her fascinating backstory, which includes having food be a source of anxiety and stress growing up, to why healthy eating does not have to be a sacrifice, we get into her business as a writer for Medium, starting her own business right out of college, and the various revenue streams she has built for herself. Just listen to the first three minutes, after the intro of course, and I guarantee you will be hooked and inspired by her simple and empathetic message. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Kaki Okumura. On a scale of one to ten. Yeah. How weird are you? <laughs> um, that's funny. If you ask my closest friends, I think they'd say I'm really weird. But probably. Why would they say that? You know, I don't even. I think I have a funny sense of humor and I do things differently. Even the idea of writing after college, I don't think that's something a lot of people do. It takes a certain kind of belief in that the world works with different rules. And I think that makes people weird. I don't think my, of myself super weird, but. I do like the idea of thinking I'm a little different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Cheers to that. Yeah, cheers. I first came across your writing on the Medium platform. I instantly fell in love with your articles on Japanese food and wellness. This took me to your blog, kakikata.space. Yeah. Where you have beautiful illustrations, which you drew. Thank you. To accompany your posts. Great work, simple, helpful, and charming. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> How would you describe your blog to someone who has not yet had the opportunity to read kakikata.space? Well, I would say that it's directed towards people who are really curious about how to improve their well being. I say well being intentionally because we're not just talking about. Our physical health, but we're also talking about our mental health because I think those things are really interrelated. And I kind of use my Japanese background and ideas and principles around balance to direct these advice or thought pieces. Okay, nobody likes labels, but sometimes they help, especially when what you do is pretty eclectic. So, Kaki, let me ask you. What label could I attach to you? Are you a writer, a psychologist, a nutritionist, an illustrator, all of these, or something else? (laughs) 
it's something I still struggle with today. I think it's also a really new niche that people don't have a really strong understanding of. I'll tell people I'm a writer and an illustrator, but they'll always have follow-up questions. I'll have to describe like, okay, I create content. I write about wellness, Japanese-based wellness. If you're from Japan, you're always curious, like, okay, who's it directed toward? What's really interesting about wellness in Japan is I don't think people really notice it as a thing. It's just part of their lifestyle. And so they'll be like, what do you mean Japanese wellness? That doesn't even exist. But, you know, I'll bring up concepts like hara hachibume, which means eight tenths your stomach. For a lot of people, it just comes like intuition. They're just raised that way. But trying to explain like, hey, that's not really obvious in other cultures. This is something that's really particular to Japan. And that's the kind of concepts I introduce to an audience growing up my mom was a vegetarian for many years and since she cooked the meals every day basically made me a vegetarian I heard a lot about nutrition and how foods affect your body so let's say I have a foundation and an interest in many of the principles you write about Let's unfold your story, your path to nutrition and healthy living. Unfortunately, it didn't come from parental influence, did it? No. I grew up really overweight as a kid. This is where my background's kind of important. I was raised in the U.S. my childhood, and I'm going to public school. If you've been to an American public school, you know those meals are not great. It's like chicken nuggets or pasta with butter. And so, <laughs> sounds and, good. <laughs> and so, my friends are eating this. And if I go to their house, the snacks that they have available, you know, Ritz crackers or something, it's not, I'm not being given fruit. I'm not being given vegetables. And so, I grew up really overweight as a kid. You know, I think this is a pretty common pattern, but when you grow up overweight, you don't even have this idea of what healthy living should look and feel like. I didn't even have that foundation. So I, I'm overweight, and then I moved to Japan, and in this country, so many people are lean. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> I need to change my life. Were you really self-conscious about that? I was super self-conscious. I think also the school I went to had a really strong health and personal fitness program. So PE class was really intense. I was like, I couldn't keep up. In my old public school, you know, there's a lot of unhealthy kids, so I was pretty average which is kind of sad to think about, but I came to this school. I'm lost in everything, I'm sweating, and I really hated that. How old were you? I was, I first moved in seventh grade middle school. I was thinking, okay, I need to change my lifestyle because... That's interesting, because you, you, at seventh grade, that means, what, you're 12? Yeah, 12, 13, about. Right, so even at 12 and 13, you realized you needed to change your lifestyle? Yeah, also, you know, there's this misconception maybe that kids don't think about their weight. From a young age, there's a lot of pressure for little kids to think about the way they look. And in the beginning, it was a lot about wanting to look better, wanting to feel better. I was never bullied for my weight, which I'm really thankful for. I think I was in a good community for that. Did your parents help? The way your mother was cooking or maybe your father was cooking? I would say my parents were super supportive once I got into that momentum of I want to change my life. So I was telling them, hey, I want dinner to have more vegetables or I want to eat more fish instead of red meat. 
Also, my grandma had a really heavy influence. She's one of the healthiest people I know. She like loves eating weird and interesting stuff. Weird and interesting stuff. What does that mean? I would say it's like she loved like pickled things. She loved. She had like this yard, so she'd literally just pick grasses or like fruit off the tree and be like, "Oh, you can make this into a little spice, or if you like boil this in the soup, it'll taste better." Stuff like that. She like went to the market and would just pick new foods and then bring it back home. And so when she saw you as a seventh, eighth yeah. grader, did she say, "Kaki, we need to do something here"? Yeah, I want to say pressure you, but did she make some comments that were helpful? She was more of a traditional woman, so she would be a lot stricter than my parents were, which I can't even say it's a good or a bad thing. I'm really grateful that my parents never made me feel self-conscious about my weight. That was something more self-inflicted. But my grandma definitely was okay. Kaki, you need to change your lifestyle. Like this isn't good for you. But at 13, do you、yeah. even really know how to do that? That was the big problem, which kind of inspired me to do a lot more writing in terms of how to eat well and balance. I actually went from this place where I was really overweight and I lost a ton of weight because I had no idea how to manage that balance. I was exercising too much. I wasn't eating enough. I felt really awful. My family members were like, "Oh, you're such a cranky person at that age," but it's because I wasn't eating well. I wasn't taking care of myself, and I reached this really extreme point. So I was on both ends. I was over, really overweight, felt really bad, and then I became really underweight and still felt really bad. I saw myself going on this path where food was becoming this source of stress and anxiety. That was something I could not live with for the rest of my life, and I knew that. I needed balance. Like, okay, overeating, undereating. How do I find my middle ground? How、right. do I maintain that? How do you teach yourself that? Aside from your grandmother, your parents, or they weren't like my mom, that was a vegetarian <laughs> and was preaching to me all the time. I would make tofu scrambled eggs because we didn't eat dairy products. Yeah. To be honest, I wouldn't even say there's one influence that taught me. It was just looking at the people around me. They're still eating ice cream. They are still eating fried foods. They're not going to the gym every day, but they're still lean. They're still healthy, and so it's giving myself permission to eat dessert when other people are. But I'd eat it moderately. I'd eat the same portions as them, and then I found I could still enjoy these foods that I really loved without gaining all this weight back, which I was really scared of, and not having to restrict myself. That was trial and error over, I'd say, a few years even. You live in the states, right? I was born in the U.S. Just to give a bit of a, my background, I was born in Dallas and I grew up in the States. But then I lived in Japan for a few years, so I spent a lot of my life in both countries. So when I tell people where I'm from, if I'm in the U.S., I'll tell them I'm from Tokyo. But if I'm in Japan, I'll be like,、oh, I'm from the States. Why do you switch them? That's a very interesting question. I think it makes makes you more interesting. <laughs> It might make me more interesting. I think also, those parts of my identity are not super obvious when you look at me. So if I'm in the states, you kind of assume I'm raised in the U.S. Whereas if I'm in Japan, you kind of assume I'm raised in Japan. Whereas I feel like it's really important when I meet someone new that they know that I grew up in a different part, and that would kind of inform like the way I talk and the way I think. Okay. Eating healthy in the U.S. seems like a challenge, whereas eating healthy in Japan is pretty easy. Why is this? 
there are multiple things. First of all, I think when you eat out in Japan, the portion size is way smaller, moderate. Also, there's a focus on including a lot of different things. So if you're thinking about the concept of ichiju sansai, which means one soup, three sides, or the way bento boxes are designed, right. they come with a lot of different things. And this idea of balance and having a lot of different foods in one meal is already kind of ingrained. Yeah, and in small portions and of in each. small portions. A lot of people are raised with this, and even if they're not raised with that home cooking, it's in schools. A lot of workplaces have like business cafeterias, and they'll have meals that are set up where it's already kind of balanced. Even if you're not raised with it, your environment just kind of pushes you. Okay, this is what a moderate portion looks like, and you're, that's your understanding of it. If I'm hearing you correctly, what you write is more purpose-driven because what you discovered and what you write about has been life-changing. Yeah, exactly. It's so important to change my life, which is why I'm really passionate about it. When I began writing, it was never, I want to make this my career, I want to become like an online writer, and that's how I'm going to build my business. But it's really, I started writing when I went back to the U.S. in college, and I was reintroduced to these people who didn't know how to eat they struggled with their health and so I was like what I learned in Japan my own experience can really help these people I'm just gonna write it put it out there hope that it resonates and so it really did just come from a place of passion and then people enjoyed it it was helpful and I got these emails you know that really that concept really changed the way I think about eating it's really helped me it's really inspired me so I just kept writing and I realized I had a lot to share and wanted to share that's kind of how the writing grew. People who read your articles are going to find them interesting, surprising, even fun. And here are a few blog post titles which caught my eye. How do retired sumo wrestlers lose weight? Japanese food and why everything comes with ginger. How to convince a child to eat a strange looking vegetable. And how Nagano became the healthiest place in Japan. Where do you get your best ideas for your articles? I would say I get my best ideas from just conversations with other people. I was watching sumo with my grandparents and I was thinking, what happens to these people when they retire? And I asked them, they had no idea. So I do some <laughs> research. Thinking about ginger, I'd be having sushi with my dad and why is there ginger with sushi? Like, when did that happen? Either he'd have some insight or I'd just do my own research. I'm thinking, ginger doesn't just come with sushi. It comes with curry. It comes with takoyaki. Like, where does that come from? And yeah. it's not something you see in every culture. So I thought that was interesting. It's fascinating. <laughs> and why does ginger come with so many meals? In terms of sushi, it was like a palate cleanser. You're eating raw foods. You want to be able to taste because it's so fresh, you really need to taste the difference between the different fishes and you want that palate cleanser. But when you think about other foods, it became the sort of, people realized that ginger was really helpful when it came to digestion. It wasn't just making your mouth feel refreshed, but your stomach would feel better eating heavier foods. And so people just started adding ginger to side dishes for a lot of foods. Yeah. So how do sumo wrestlers lose weight after they retire? It's a hard question because it depends on the person. And that piece I wrote was on someone who's pretty successful in their retirement. 
Of course, gaining a lot of weight and trying to lose it and keep it off is really difficult, not just lifestyle-wise, but mentally when you're trained to gain a lot of weight and eat a lot, it's hard to fall out of that habit. For the person I wrote about, he just ate a lot more vegetables, he ate less, he drank less. A lot of sumo wrestlers gain weight by drinking beer, drinking alcohol. With that in mind, and then he developed exercises based on sumo wrestling because he's very flexible. The principles are the same. It's exercise, eat in moderation, eat balanced meals. Wow. Here's a great quote from you. Building a sustainable and healthy lifestyle is not about a food pyramid or counting calories. The core problem was never a lack of information, but our environment, our experiences, and our emotions tied with food. Yeah, especially when you're coming from a place where you really struggle with food. Take binge eating, for example. No one wants to be eating pints and tubs of ice cream and making themselves feel sick, but it's really tied to emotions at that point. And that feeling of fullness that it could give us comfort. And it could also be sometimes like pleasant memories. You know, when we're a kid and our mom would always take us to McDonald's to make us feel better, then you start associating fries and burgers with comfort and love. And so as you, (laughs) yeah, and then as you get older, You know, you're like, I feel bad. Something didn't go the way I wanted. I'm going to go to McDonald's. Food is really emotional for a lot of people. Fascinating. So food can find us in vulnerable moments when we're not in a position for great self-control. Yeah. There's some people who are like stoic robots and they can really be like, okay, I'm going to measure everything out. I'm going to count calories and that's it. But for the majority of people, food is... It's how we identify with ourselves, our culture, our background, our family. It's really important to think about how food plays with our emotions and the way we think about ourselves and not just think of it as, okay, vegetables are good for us. Vitamin C will make me healthy. Right. My mantra has always been moderation. Yeah. So many people don't like to eat healthy because they think that there's so many sacrifices that they have to make. They're going to eat carrot sticks all day long. (laughs) It's also a beginner's mistake when you're thinking about, okay, I want a healthy lifestyle. That means a lifestyle of restriction and self-deprivation. And people usually don't look forward to going on a diet or trying to lose weight. But the whole idea is that you can still become healthier, live a healthier life and really enjoy it. And I think you start realizing eating foods that make you feel really good in your body and in your skin that's joyful and you enjoy doing it and that's really where you want to get to where you really love the way you eat and it's really sustainable and gives you energy makes you feel good when i think about sustainable eating if you don't enjoy the way you eat it's not going to last forever and so that's why 99 percent of diets fail whereas if you really enjoy the way you eat and you really resonate with it in terms of your values as well you can do it for the rest of your life and you'll never have to think or worry about the way you eat again that's a great point. That's, that's, that's probably the best quote of the podcast so far. <laughs> I love that. I grew up playing a lot of sports. Yeah. I played Little League Baseball. When I was in elementary school, I played for this baseball team that was sponsored by a grocery store. Whenever we would win a game, we got to go to the grocery store and pick out one thing as our reward for winning. 
Oh, and so everybody would get like a candy bar, some ice cream, yeah. some kind of treat. I would be so excited. Oh, I'm going to get to eat one of these candy bars. And my mother would make me select a fruit. <laughs> so I would be in line with all my teammates and they have candy and ice cream and I would have an apple. Oh, God. <laughs> and all of my teammates would be like, why do you have an apple? I later told that story to my mother after I was out of university. She didn't remember it. Yeah. But she, she apologized. She, <laughs> she said that she felt sorry for me because there was pure pressure on me to select a, like a, some kind of candy like all my other teammates. Yeah. But I had to pick an apple. It's also interesting when you think about treats, it tends to also be unhealthy. So that's kind of a weird balance. Whereas in Japan, I also come across instances where people see fruit as the treat. I mean, in Japan, fruits are really expensive, so that's probably a part of it. But, but they're also delicious. They're so sweet. Yesterday, I had the most amazing white peach just melt in your mouth. Oh so sweet and ripe. People see these fruits as dessert, and they see it as luxury, which is interesting because it's not necessarily more sugar or bigger is better. It's the taste, the freshness, and that difference in the way we perceive luxury food or treats is also important in the way we think about healthy eating. Most Japanese course meals, usually the dessert is fruit. I think especially if you're looking at really traditional... Like kaiseki. Yeah, kaiseki meals. Yeah, it's usually fruit or it's very seasonal themed. So you want to eat foods in season and chocolate doesn't really have a season. It's also not from Japan. So a lot of the times chefs will create desserts revolving around fruits because it's very seasonal and they want to offer something that tastes best at that time. It's interesting with fruits in Japan because when they're in season, they're everywhere. Once summer comes, the watermelons come out and you're like, okay, summer is here. Right. Once it becomes fall, it's the apples come out. And for a while, I'd base the seasons on like when the fruits would come out in the grocery store. Okay, it's strawberry season. That's so <laughs> true. It's like fashion. Yeah, though, in, it's in almost a way. like fashion. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, when I first came to Japan, I had this girlfriend. In the summer, we went shopping and we bought this uh, summer dress. Yeah. And you know, in Tokyo, on August 20th, it could be 40 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> on September 1st, it could be 40 degrees. Yeah. It's possible. This particular summer, it was very hot. Maybe it wasn't 40, but it was in the high 30s yeah. all the way into September. And we had a date, and I said, oh, why don't you wear that summer dress? Yeah. And she said, oh, I can't wear that. It's September. Th- it's fall now. <laughs> That's so funny. So she made the decision based on the calendar, not on the weather. That's so true. Japanese people are really in tune with the seasons in general, and so they're really aware of what's appropriate to wear in a certain season or what to eat during a certain season. So that's really funny that she said that. (laughs) Same with fruit. Yeah, same with fruit. Hey, it's September. I can't eat watermelon. What are you, crazy? What happens to all the the watermelon on September 1st? That's what I want to know. That's what you should research, Kaki. Maybe I'll look into it. That sounds so convincing, the way you said that. <laughs> okay. We all know getting a great sleep is important, and this is what Gugu is all about. Super comfortable mattresses at very affordable prices and delivered to your home for free. They back up their best sleep ever promise with a 100-night money-back guarantee. 
Learn more at gugu.jp and enter the coupon code ZEN for your 20% discount. Gugu, better sleep, better you. The cornerstone of your blog and your ideology, the four essential pillars to a healthy lifestyle. Could you please explain these four pillars? So the four pillars is nourish, move, rest, and socialize. I would say there's no order in which one's most important or which one you need to look at first. Hold but on Let me repeat those back because this is important. It's nourishment, physical activity, it's rest, and it's to socialize. Yes. All right. Continue. I wouldn't say there's a ranking in terms of which one's most important or which one we need to be addressing first, but the idea is that these four things are highly interrelated with each other. As a basic example, if you don't sleep well, you don't exercise well, you don't have that energy to move. If you don't eat well, you know, sometimes you can't sleep well, you, it impacts the way our body can find rest. Also, when we think about socializing, the people we surround ourselves with will influence the way we decide to eat or the way we decide to move. And so that's also really that's important. That's a very yeah. good point. I have some friends that love to drink. <laughs> and I enjoy you know, yeah. good craft beer. I'm a big fan of tequila. But in, again, in moderation. There's some friends that I know that if, I, if they say, hey, let's go out for a beer, no <laughs> way. I'm going to end up drinking way too much just because you know you get caught up in the moment no exactly when we think about changing to a healthier lifestyle a lot of the times we focus on the self like what can i change but sometimes it's who should i surround myself with if your friend likes to exercise they like play tennis on the weekends and you surround yourself with people like that you'll find yourself joining them that becomes your idea of fun whereas if you're with someone who's always drinking that's their idea of fun it'll impact the way you drink as well. So rest, nourishment, moving, and socializing. Is there one that's kind of the most important? I wouldn't say most important, but the things that people don't pay enough attention to most of the time is rest. So when you're thinking about, I want to live a healthier lifestyle, you do everything more. I need to eat more vegetables. I need to exercise more. People never talk about, you need to sleep more. You need to sleep at appropriate times. That's also really important. I wouldn't say it's the most important, but I right. think it's the most often overlooked. So these four pillars, and we've been discussing diet and nutrition and health. Yeah. But these four pillars are also closely linked to your mental health as well. Yeah. That's what I really realized You know, when I was at that point where I was really underweight. I looked, you know, that magazine definition of great, but I felt awful. I was always anxious. I was always stressed. I was like afraid of food too, which is really a feeling I do not wish on anyone. Afraid of food. What, what do you mean by that? I would, I think it happens to a lot of people when they start to associate social situations with not having control with how they can eat or drink go out with friends and you become afraid oh everyone else is drinking i need to drink with them oh if i have a beer that's gonna ruin my diet i'm gonna relapse or something so you start becoming avoidant of those socials of those social situations you know you also become afraid of eating ice cream and 
Ice cream's not a great example, but sometimes with holidays, it's just about enjoying yourself. It's about connecting with family, but not being able to enjoy the dessert served at the end. Or my grandmother would make these beautiful dishes, and I'd be like, I don't know if I can eat this. I realized then I don't want to live my life like that. Yeah. That mental health part is also really important to the balance, I'd say. You usually write about these four pillars from a Japanese perspective and、yes. how that can help Americans. Yeah. Could we flip it? Is there anything that Japanese could learn about these four pillars from the U.S.? That's a really interesting point.、Hmm. When I think about food in the U.S., it's difficult to describe American food culture just because I think it's beyond burgers and barbecue foods. But Americans are people from so many different cultures. Maybe Japanese people can think about when it comes to food. Is that in Japan tradition is really important? There's like a specific way of doing things. Whereas the U.S. they're a lot more experimental with their food and trying to be inspired by different cultures and fuse ideas. That's something that leans into nourish. Of course, but also maybe socialize in the way we interact with different cultures.、Yeah. Well, Americans are very gregarious. They love to socialize. They'll talk with anybody. Yeah. Again, referring back to my grandparents, I remember one summer they took a trip to Greece. Hey, how was your trip to Greece? And, you know, and I expected to hear about Athens and the food and the Acropolis and the history and Greek mythology. And they said, "Oh, we met this Greek." Couple from Kansas City. They were so friendly, and they were so. We hung out with them the whole time. <laughs> so maybe Japanese could learn how to be a little bit more gregarious. Yeah, especially if you're in Japan. Maybe Japanese people in the U.S. will act differently. As someone, especially if you're a foreigner coming into Japan, there's a huge barrier to like getting people to open up and talk about themselves and getting to know you as well. Which I think is frustrating for a lot of foreigners. That is something that Japanese people could learn from the U.S., where it's just being friendly and actually—it's not just being polite and kind, but being open and being really authentic and not having to worry too much about how you present yourself. One of the biggest objections I hear from friends and relatives about eating healthy is there's too much sacrifice. Can't eat what I enjoy the most. Can't go to my favorite restaurant. Eating healthy takes too much prep time. It's a burden. What do you say to this? When it comes to healthy eating, you have to think less about healthy food versus unhealthy food. You want to think about moderation. We brought this up pretty often in this conversation, but you can eat "quote unquote" unhealthy food. Eat your favorite meal at your favorite restaurant, but you don't need to eat. Three servings worth of a huge steak can enjoy just a moderate portion would look like.、Sure. You can still go to Krispy Kreme, just eat one, not a dozen. I don't know many people who will gain a lot of weight eating donuts, but it's usually the things that are small that we don't really see. So it'll be our alcohol habits, our snacking habits, the things that we don't really pay attention to. When I think about a healthy lifestyle, it's a lot more focused on. Moderation and portions, and not eating too much of one thing, but trying to find that balance rather than you got to cut out potato chips、right. because people don't gain twenty pounds eating potato chips usually. <laughs> usually, 
So eating different foods, you say, is important. Why is variety important? So variety is always a good idea for multiple reasons. One is thinking more from like a nutritional background. It helps with different digestion. If you're just eating something kind of fatty, if you don't pair it with something that has a bit more digestive enzymes or something, that can make you feel really bloated. One example would be Japanese pork cutlet, tonkatsu. They'll always serve it with raw cabbage. And that's really intentional because raw cabbage has these vitamins that help with fat digestion. Oh, really? Yeah. You feel refreshed, you don't feel really heavy, you don't feel bloated. More from a, a perspective of maybe intuition, you're thinking rice in itself is not bad, but if you're having a huge bowl of it and that's your entire meal, obviously that's not great for you. But if you pair it with vegetables, you pair it with meat, you're getting good protein so you feel full, you get carbohydrates, that's also energy, and then fiber from vegetables help with digestion, help with feeling just full. In that way, you can enjoy a lot of different foods that you enjoy, but everything's in moderation. So you don't need to worry about cutting out certain foods or not. Wow. Are organic vegetables really that more nutritional or is it just because of pesticides? Well, the label organic really means little in most situations. So people associate organic vegetables as healthier and they tend to be more expensive. So maybe that's where these ideas of healthy food is expensive comes from. If you're really thinking, I want to eat better, you don't need to worry about those labels so much. There are definitely certain foods that you want to think pesticide-free, you want to think about how they're grown. And so that's why I'll always advocate for people who have access to them. They're called CSA boxes. It's when local farmers will put together boxes of fresh fruit or vegetables deliver them to your home or you pick them up somewhere. Right, CSA boxes. Yeah. What does that stand for? I think it's community, oh God, I need to look this up, community service. Anyway, we could, yeah. we'll look it up. And I think they have that in Japan as well. Yeah, they do, and I think they're fantastic. Um, a lot of, most big cities will have them for sure. And it's basically this idea that you can get local vegetables. They're pretty cheap because you buy them in bulk and you buy them directly from the farm. And so I always advocate that people purchase from those when they can because they'll get high quality vegetables. They're usually cheaper and they're super seasonal and fresh. So they taste great. Why did you decide to start Kakikata as a business? Just as a bit of a background, I started writing in college and then I graduated in 2020. It's a pandemic year and you know, I was on this track to do something very traditional corporate, enter the workforce. I think it's a very common pattern, but it's a pandemic. So I'm thinking, okay, this is not normal as a circumstance. I should be doing something different, or it's a really good opportunity to be doing something different. And I found people are really shocked by, obviously a lot of lifestyle changes came with the pandemic. So it's- For sure. How do I eat at home? My kids are home now, so I gotta cook for more people. How do I save time? A lot of people were struggling with that lifestyle change and I found it was a really good opportunity to talk about how to cook, how to eat healthy, how to cook for a lot of people. Ideas like eating with the seasons and moderation. And also people are spending more time online. So right. I thought it's just a great way to, you know, it wasn't necessarily my life dream, but it kind of fell really natural and... Developed what? organically. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs>
your articles on Medium have been read hundreds of thousands of times. Can you make a good living writing for Medium? This is a really interesting question because Medium has gone through a lot of changes recently. Before, my answer would have been a solid yes. Well, I heard 90% of the writers on Medium make less than $100 a month. I definitely make more. <laughs> okay. So you are in the top 10% then. Yeah. Of the I'm definitely in the top 10. I think I may even be higher. As a general idea, it's the reading time that determines your pay. As a subscriber to subscribe to Medium, it's $5. Right. I'm a subscriber. You pay $5 and let's say you spend half your t reading time reading my articles, then I would get 250 of that. It's not super direct like that, but as an idea, it's the more reading time you have on a certain person's writing, the more money I would make as a writer. So if I go to Medium and I read one of your articles and there's links to your other articles, let's say I go to a older article that you yeah. wrote. So if I'm reading three or four of your articles, you're getting paid for that. Yeah, I get paid for the things I wrote two, three years ago as well, which is the nice part about content creation because it's everlasting. <laughs> So getting back to your business, on your website, you sell commissioned illustrations. Yeah. You sell healthy recipes. You have your content on Medium. It's fascinating. I, I'm just curious, does this income provide for a financially sustainable lifestyle? It's a great time to be in content creation. Things you listed are definitely part of the services I offer, but actually the bigger bulk of it is... I do private coaching and I do online courses, which are only available to people who are subscribed to my newsletter. This online course is a bigger part of my income than I'd say my commission art. It's a healthy eating course. It teaches people principles of Japanese cooking and eating. I also do private coaching for people who need that extra step and assistance. So they want someone who, to keep them accountable and that personal tension, I think, is really helpful for a lot of people who struggle with being consistent with themselves. And health journeys are not always easy. They can be kind of depressing for some people. Sure, and it's so very important. If you don't have someone you can lean on for health advice, hiring a coach is a really good solution for people. This segues into something that I do from time to time, my free unsolicited business idea. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> It's a reality show. Think The Biggest Loser meets Terrace House or Real Life. You take a small group of Americans with healthy lifestyle issues. Yeah. And for one month, they have to stick to your four pillars. Rest, nourishment, activity, socializing. Use your recipes, your portions, your philosophies. The winner gets a free trip to Japan to experience firsthand the Japanese principles of how to live a longer and happier life. Your role is the consultant and the coordinator for this reality show. You receive a big fee. You get your name and brand out there, which translates into more followers and readers. This leads to more opportunities to market yourself. What do you think? Honestly, I love it. I like how you really mentioned Terrace House as the kind of, I don't know how to, the aesthetic of the show, because The Biggest Loser, I've watched it before, but it's so American. It's it is, yeah. Do everything extreme. You know, you want to see people crying. You want to see dramatic music. You want to get really emotional, but... For, for those people that don't know what The Biggest Loser yeah. is, it's like a weight loss 
competition, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a weight loss competition, and whoever loses the most weight, hence is the biggest loser, gets. I think it's like a big cash prize. So I like how you mentioned Terrace House because it's a very Japanese reality show. You're observing people living their lives, but it's it's very subtle. It's not super in their face. It's very natural. That's a really important distinction. So I like how you mentioned that. The whole idea about healthy living is not it's not about looking a certain way, but it's really about building sustainable habits, being able to cover a lot of different topics. You could even be a cook on the show. <laughs> yeah, teaching people how to cook. You know how to enjoy food. It wouldn't be about trying to make them feel. You, yeah, yeah, you could come in. You know, like the den mother or something <laughs> like that, and explain your philosophies. And for the next twenty-four hours, this is your task. Yeah, honestly, I would love that. Just because the whole idea of kakikata is just, I want to help people. I think there's a lot of people who struggle with their health. Being able to do that and make money is it's the goal. <laughs> it's a dream come true. Yeah. <laughs> Well, lucky for you, there's tons of TV directors that listen to this podcast. So Amazing. Please reach out. Kagikata.space. <laughs> Another thing that I do on this podcast is I ask all my guests, what is your favorite Japanese word which does not have a direct English translation? Oh, there's so many. I'll bring up two. One that I use often, and I think a lot of people share this one, is mendoksai. It means it's too cumbersome. It's a burden. It's a burden. But it's very lighthearted, I'd say. It's burden sounds really heavy. Mendoksa is very light. It's something you just don't want to do, but you'll do it anyways. Right. I use Mendoksa all the time. So that's one word. My second word that I thought of was Setsunai, which is Setsunai. How would you describe that? It's a mix of melancholy, but it's not really sadness. It's nostalgia. It's nostalgia. But it's nostalgia, it feels kind of beautiful. And I have a hard time describing it. But what are the kanji for setsuna? Is it kisetsu no setsu? Oh, God. I don't remember. I don't want to say something wrong. Okay. <laughs> okay. Dear listener, please Google it. Yeah. <laughs> I associate the term with Sakura season. And that idea of have that full bloom, Sakura, it's beautiful, and then it falls really fast. It's right. really brief. And that feeling of it ending and that season changing. But you enjoyed it. Yes, and you thought it was beautiful, and it was, it's sad, but it's Setsunai. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kaki, how can people who want to learn more about what we talked about today, how can they find you? Visit my website, subscribe to my newsletter, my email newsletter. That's the most important. How, how do they get there? What's the address? Oh, yeah. Visit www.kakikata.space. The link to the subscribing is there. Put in your email, subscribe, and you'll get all my latest information, updates. And that's where I'm constantly posting the most relevant information. Is there anything you would like to add today? Maybe something I didn't ask you, but you want to get out there or you want to mention? This is less like information, but if you're struggling with your health, I just want to encourage people and let you know that you're not trapped by it. It's really hard, especially the longer you've dealt with your health problems, whatever they may be, it becomes a part of your identity and you feel trapped by it. It defines the way you live and think about yourself, but... 
this is just a reminder that you can change those things and it's not hard it takes consistency and takes support and it takes a lot of initiative on your own side but that belief that you can change is super important so hold on to that wow that's beautiful thank you <laughs> yeah you're <laughs> i really enjoyed this podcast your writings are beautiful and also the way you verbalize it as well is thank beautiful you so, much. so uh, thank you for joining me today. You have a great future ahead of you. I'm looking forward to following all of your success. I learned a lot today. It was great swapping stories. What you do is really important, and I appreciate it. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It was so much fun. It was a pleasure talking. <laughs> and that was the amazing Kaki Okamura. So much wisdom, empathy, and insight. She has turned her journey into actionable advice which could impact everybody's life. To read more of Kaki's articles and learn more about her services, go to www.kakikata.space and I highly recommend subscribing to her free but valuable newsletter. You can also search for her excellent articles on Medium under her name, Kaki Okamura. If you've listened this far, I guess you enjoyed this episode, so please leave a star rating or comment for me on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. To hear more insightful conversations like Kaki's, go to nowandzen.jp and go crazy. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.